Our sermon passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 3. Uh, we've had a lot this morning about blood uh, and guts and redemption. And uh, if you're visiting with us, I'm sure that's a little bit unusual. Uh, probably feels a little bit weird. I also watched the movie Food, Inc., and so I know how gross blood and guts is. Um, but here's why uh, we read so much about that. It's about redemption, that blood tells us how important sin and darkness is to God, how important it is to destroy them. Uh, And in Christ, they were destroyed. And I hope for us this morning that this reading from Romans 3 uh, begins to put all that together. Uh, Starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nathaniel. All right. Uh, We begin a three-part series on the gospel. We've entitled it, uh, The Three Tenses of Salvation. Uh, Today we're going to talk about uh, the idea that uh, I I was saved. Uh, We're going to talk about justification. And next week, uh, Pastor Nathaniel will be speaking about sanctification. I am being saved. And then the following week, I'll be speaking on glorification which is, I shall be saved completely. Uh, And so those are the three tenses of salvation we're going to explore. Uh, And uh, it's my privilege to address uh, a couple of different kinds of people here this morning. Uh, If you are um, somewhat confused about the core issue of Christianity, if uh, you find yourself a little bit perplexed, um, scattered, and not sure where, where to focus, I hope that you'll find today to be very, very informative. Uh, Another kind of person today is if you are uh, unsure about what kind of church you should be looking for. 
Uh, I hope you'll uh, pick up on um, a church that's focused on the kinds of things that you're going to hear this morning. And uh, another kind of person here is the, the person who is wondering, how am I to live? Really, practically speaking, what does this mean for my life day to day, uh, day in and day out? How am I supposed to live? Uh, and I hope that uh, some of your questions will be addressed today as well. Uh, today we're going to talk about the gospel. And I hope that uh, those who will hear this on our website will be uh, informed of what I believe is a unique church here at Trinity, uh, that we endeavor to focus upon uh, the gospel uh, continually, uh, Sunday by Sunday, and uh, through our fellowship groups uh, to apply the gospel, and then you individually, that you will be applying the gospel as well. So will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we could hear these glorious truths. It is a privilege of mine to stand before these people and to speak and to communicate. And Lord, those are things I really can't do. Uh, your, uh, your mercy is needed right now to communicate these truths, not just to the intellect, but to the soul, that our thirst for these truths will be manifested, that we will not be able to hear them and then just water off uh, our backs that this will be deeply meaningful, and I pray that you'll help us in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, let me just uh, orient you to Book of Romans real quickly. The Book of Romans 1 through 3, that's all we'll do right now, and that is that Book of Romans 1 through 3 is functioning uh, like how the old cowboy days, they would uh, get uh, wild horses and put them in a, in a box canyon. Uh, the horses didn't know they were running into a box canyon, and that's how they would catch them. Uh, Romans 1 is, uh, is the, the pagans. Uh, they're being herded into a box canyon. Uh, Romans 2 uh, is the religious Jews, um, those who pride themselves in their religious instruction uh, in the law. Uh, they're being herded into a box canyon. Uh, the box canyon is in Romans 3. And that is where uh, everyone, the whole world, when you think of the pagans, you think of everyone around the world, and when you think of the Jews, you think of that specific group that received the old covenant uh, they are, the, Romans 3 is the, is the box canyon. And what I mean by box canyon? The box canyon is the law has got you. The law has, uh, has got you in a particular way. And I want you to look at Romans 3.19. Romans 3.19 uh, shows us that the law uh, is speaking to two kinds of people. It's speaking to people in the world in general and the Jews in particular. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. There's the box canyon. Uh, and, whole, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, uh, pagan, Jew, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Uh, there is a basic level of knowledge about God's law written in the heart of every person. Romans 1 teaches us. That basic knowledge of the law that the, embodied in the Ten Commandments is in every person. It's actually reflected in many, many cultures around the world. The, the basic structure of the Ten Commandments is somewhat reflected in the, the codes and, and civil laws of, of, of cultures. And, uh, and that, that law is written upon the heart 
you don't have to have uh, the written word of God to uh, be exposed to the law standards. And now what I describe as the quieting effect of God's grace is taking place in Romans 3.19 and 20. And that is that every mouth may be closed and the whole world be held accountable to God. Um, it's hard to, uh, to find people who are willing to be accountable, uh, to say, yeah, that's me, uh, I'm a lawbreaker. Uh, it's very, very hard to find people like that. And uh, even when they hear the law, and they hear the law's perfect standard, uh, they may try to scoot to the side and, 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 and get out from underneath it by some way or another. But the Bible says you can't do that. And the, the work of the law, its first work is to find sinners. It's not always easy to find sinners. Uh, the work of the law is to expose the heart and to, to, for the person to no longer be making excuses before, before, for themselves or before God and to come honestly and say, your law slays me. Your law, I, I have not obeyed it. Uh, speaking of uh, domestic abuse, I um, was a character witness for an individual uh, about a year ago, and uh, I went to the court uh, air, uh, courtrooms where many of the domestic abuse issues are dealt with on the island. And uh, since uh, I was there available, uh, but I wasn't uh, called upon, I was actually able to listen in uh, and for a number of hours. I had to wait for our case to come up. Uh, to the court proceedings that were in front of me. So for several hours, uh, I, I watched uh, people in particular who had been taken in by the police the night before, and they came in to the courtroom uh, in their shackles and in their uh, police outfits, uh, their prison outfits, and uh, to watch how they would plead, uh, how they would plead before the court, and then they would be given a, a day to, uh, you know, to mount their defense. And uh, so it goes along, and you, you hear what they're charged with and uh, serious things. And there's one guy in particular who uh, uh, his head was bowed down. He did not look at the judge. Uh, he was heavily burdened with, uh, with shame. And uh, when it came the time for him to plead, if he's guilty or not guilty, uh, he said guilty. And he said these words. He says, I want to get this over with. Uh, I want to get it over with. Uh, I'm wrong. Uh, and uh, everything you've just said about me is true. Uh, after several hours in the courtroom, you don't hear that quite often. And, uh, and again, his head was down. He could not look at the judge. And he said, get it, get it on with. It's all true. And it's interesting that the judge paused and said, mm, slow down. You need to have an advocate. I know you, you're pleading guilty, but I want you to slow down. I don't want to record this yet. I want to make sure you've had adequate advice. I want, to know, I want to make sure the law, the law that could be working in your favor, you know about that. It was very nice of that judge. Now, uh, when we think about God as judge, what God is doing is he's, he's applying the law. And when the law is applied, there is no mercy. Uh, and I've been thinking of a new, fresh way to, to help you see this and how, how uh, silly it is for us to try and plead some sort of special case while we're guilty before God's law. Because I want, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ today, I would love for you to become a believer uh, before the end of this service. I would love for you to see the law's perfect assessment of you.
And here's my new illustration of this. Uh, I have grown up as a kid uh, in, in California. The California Highway Patrol uh, still, I mean, I just see a car parked at a place of donuts, you know, and I get, I get nervous, you know. Just seeing a CHP uh, car, it's black and white. My dad used to call them spiders. He didn't really like them that much. Uh, I know they're doing their job. And uh, it, they are uh, 500 horsepower uh, engine cars. They are serious pursuit cars. Don't ever try to outrun a CHP. I want you to imagine that you have actually foolishly tried to, uh, to just be out on I-5 down uh, California, and you're going about 120 miles an hour, enjoying your fast car. A CHP cruises along in second gear and catches you. And he comes alongside, and uh, you wave, he waves back. And then uh, you gesture to roll the window down, and he rolls his window down, very nice. <clears throat> and you scream through the door, uh, through the window, you say, uh, I realize I'm going 120. I know you're going 120. Pretty fast car, huh? Yeah. Uh, I want you to know, I cleaned the trash and the litter in my, in my park, at my house, in my home, just last week. I want you to know there was an elderly lady. Just last week, I helped walk across the road. I want you to know that I give to the March of Dimes. And you begin to rattle off all these uh, contributions you've made to being a good citizen. All the while, uh, you are radically breaking uh, the uh, highway code of California. Uh, that is a little bit like what it is like to be a sinner before God's law. Uh, we are, in our, in our perception uh, of how serious the situation is, our perception is completely skewed. There are people uh, today who, uh, they, they may even read that from Romans 3, and they are absolutely convinced that they can stand on Judgment Day and they can make a pretty good case. Not a perfect case, but they think that they will be able to persuade with their ability, their rhetoric, with their conditions, their, their DNA, their, their circumstances in life. They can mount an excuse that God will accept. And I hope that, that every person in this room, you are saying, oh no, it can't be true. I am violating... God's law. I am stuck in this box canyon. I can't get out. That is setting up. Setting up the way people generally think. People generally think that they are righteous in some way or another. They're generally thinking that they're going to some way merit something before God. In generally, people are thinking in terms of, I am living a righteous life. I'm certainly more consistent with my moral standards, with morality, than my neighbors, even that Christian who goes to church next to me. Or it, this is how people reason. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm not in need of any help. I don't need any help. But as a Christian here, the gospel is a desperate, honest exclamation, I need radical help. I don't have what the law of God demands of me. And the law of God demands righteousness. It demands fulfillment. It demands perfection. 
God is not in the business of uttering his will as a suggestion. Uh, He doesn't do that. So what we are lacking is we are lacking righteousness. What we have is real guilt. We lack righteousness and we have real guilt. And that guilt is never removed, no matter how uh, a good a citizen we are, uh, no matter how religious we are, that guilt is never removed. So what Paul is doing here is he's setting up, now that he has the whole world accountable before God, he's setting up the engine of salvation. We are going to look under the hood, and you're going to see a most powerful engine a way for you to be justified apart from your effort. This is the gospel. There's nothing else like it. It is not religious uh, adherence to codes and laws. It is, uh, it is not uh, any way uh, looking to our obedience for hope. Look at these words. Listen to these words. But now, one of the most incredible transitions in all the Bible But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is not a New Testament idea. This is not new to the Apostle Paul, the idea that God is going to provide righteousness. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God. If you feel comfortable underlining your Bible, I would do it right there. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. You could substitute the word satisfaction there. A propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Jesus Christ was on a mission of mercy, and he was uh, born as as a human being, fully God, fully man, and he was on an errand to achieve, this may sound strange, to achieve as a man the righteousness that should be uh, part of the human experience. He was a born of a man, Roman, excuse me, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, born of, uh, born of a woman, born under the law. And he lived under the law of God all his life. And what he attained was the righteousness of God by obedience to that law. Uh, many of us focus, and rightly so, on the death of Christ and the cross. But uh, a particular emphasis uh, of, of, our, of our tradition is to say, wait a minute, what about the life of Christ? Why did he live? What, why was he obedient? We think he lived 33 years. Why did he live those 33 years? And the idea is that he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might bring to, the, to that final culmination of his life, the, to, to that final day of his life, he would bring his, his obedience on behalf of those that he came to save. He lived a perfect life 
for you because you lack that righteousness. And that righteousness is received. It is placed upon you. It is imputed to you by faith and by God's sheer grace. I like to describe it for children, and I'll put it out here in case you've not heard, uh, for our, our, our children's pastor's class to help children understand why Jesus lived. I, I tell them that Jesus was wearing a backpack. Uh, uh, the Bible doesn't say that, by the way. But he was wearing a backpack. And I, and I say that Jesus, every day of his life, uh, obeyed his heavenly father. Uh, he loved his uh, father and mother perfectly. He obeyed every law that God had ever commanded. And he stuffs all that obedience in a backpack. Uh, and every day, and uh, that backpack is getting full and more full as the days go on. And then at the end of his life, that backpack is full, full of his obedience. And then he holds that backpack up and he says, Heavenly Father, and I'll say the, I'll say the, the, name, the, the child's name, place this backpack on, on Susie's back that it might be hers. Let her wear my obedience. And then I'll ask the child, where's the backpack now? Where's the backpack now? And uh, there, there's a beautiful moment where the child realizes, it's on me. It's on me. And then I'll say, how did it get there? And they'll say, by faith? Yeah, that's it. You get a star. What an important concept. This is what we are lacking. This is why the Apostle Paul says this is the righteousness of God. It is, it is imputed to us. It is put into our account. This is the most radical message you could ever hear. That the Christian life is lived because of the obedience of Jesus. We are not in process of becoming justified. Listen carefully to the, how I said that. We are not in process of, or, or that it's somehow being infused to us as we obey and, and do good things. At some point, we will be justified. No. At the point and moment of faith, which is the instrument of justification, at that moment, we are declared a son and daughter of God's, received by our Heavenly Father because of the righteousness of Jesus. This is, this is amazing stuff. And let me, what I want to do now is I want to give you an illustration that you could use um, for someone who is maybe new to your fellowship group, uh, someone at work. Uh, help your children uh, grasp this. Um, I want you to imagine that you owe the bank a million dollars. Now, I know that financial illustrations of debt are not that good these days because uh, we're used to sort of turning away from our debts, or our nation is at least. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to, to you were starting a business adventure and you borrowed a million dollars. Uh, you spent the money on machinery, uh, on offices, uh, on staff, and uh, your business went, uh, went belly up. I'm sorry. You owe the bank a million dollars. You're not paying the bank. Uh, the trustees want to have a meeting with you. So you come into a, a meeting and you're rather nervous, and there they are. There's 12, uh, 12 angry people around the table. 
you owe them a million dollars. And uh, you are, uh, you hear from one of them, we are going to take every law, law on the books, and we are going to apply it. We're going to ruin your life. Where's, where's our money? And you say, I've spent it, and I have no way of repaying it. And, uh, and that's all you hear. You hear the law uh, of the financial world applied to you, and you leave there with your head down, and you're walking out in the parking lot. And just as you get your keys uh, in the door of your car, uh, they send one of the guys to come run, and, and he's, he's communicating a message to you. He says, I don't understand it, but here's the deal. We just forgave your debt. Pretty nice, huh? Not bad. Now, how much money do you have in the bank? Zero. You have nothing. Good job. You have zero. Now, it's not bad. Not bad to be forgiven a million dollars. Not bad. But here's the problem is, you have half of the gospel in that illustration. The forgiveness of sins is beautiful. It is extraordinary. Uh, we do not, I, by this illustration, I do not diminish that. But then the, uh, the messenger from the, uh, the trustees pauses and says, now here's the really quirky thing. Uh, they all talked about your problem with money. <laughs> and they said, you have a real issue with money. You don't handle it well. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to give you $10 billion. Is that enough? Is that going to work? Uh, it's already been imputed, uh, transferred into your account. And then the guy gives a, a, a little booklet that proves that it's actually there. Ten, $10 billion. That's the righteousness of Christ. That's been imputed to your account. God is not looking at your obedience. God is not looking at your righteousness. There is nothing there. The prophet Isaiah says our righteousness is as filthy rags. How do we get this awareness? We get this awareness through the law of God. What does God then say to us, to those who have a genuine encounter with the law of God that says, you slay me, I can't do it. I'm lacking the one thing you're asking of me, and that is I'm lacking righteousness. I am poor in spirit, the first beatitude. I am spiritually bankrupt. I am mourning, the second beatitude. I am my own self-accuser. My finger always went out, and now it goes in toward me. I am mourning. I am becoming meek, broken, the third beatitude. And to all those who are poor in spirit and who are mourning and who are meek, Jesus promises comfort, the kingdom, and he uses different languages, language than the, uh, than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is giving you the engine, the details. Christ describes it as, as trusting in him as the, as the Lamb of God or being born again or uh, uh, the living water or, or the, the bread of life, coming to him for what you need. And so we recognize that we have a powerful gospel. And here is a, a few takeaway points. I want you to take away a couple of things. First of all, 
I want to give you a quote from uh, C.J. Mahaney who wrote a book called The Cross-Centered Life. Listen to this. The gospel isn't one class, as if you were in school. The gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. Now, here's the really good news about my sermon. I don't have a to-do list for you. That should be good for you. If, you're, if you've been brought up religious, that should be good news. Uh, I have no do's and I have no don'ts. Meaning I want you to believe and I want you to receive. Open your hands. Open your ears. Open your heart. Receive the news. This is not instruction. The news the declaration that God has acted in history and his son achieved righteousness and his son offers that righteousness to all who believe and his son went to the cross to deal with our shame and our guilt. And that's the news of the gospel. And here is what's remarkable is that the world is being changed now and lives are being changed by the declaration and proclamation of news. It's just news and it's so profound and it's so extraordinary, it will, it, you cannot listen to it and believe it without it fundamentally changing your identity, your understanding of life, and uh, you, will, you will now live differently in light of this, this news. If you understand it, how can you not then love that bank? If there's some litter out in front of the bank, what would you do? Yeah, if you hear someone speaking poorly about the bank that forgave your debt and gave you $10 billion, what would you say about that bank and someone who's demeaning that bank? Would you be duty-bound? Well, I, I guess I'll have to step up and say something. Reluctantly? Not at all. This is the most glorious, uh, risk-shaping stuff you could ever hear. And one, uh, one final thought. Ask yourself, where are you justifying yourself right now? What in your life, in your, in your words, in your behavior, in your demeanor, uh, where are you defensive? Where are you saying you can't, uh, you can't attack this? Uh, this is my life. What is too important in your life right now where it is actually replacing this work of Jesus which is the epicenter of your life. Ask yourself those questions and live in the power and the freedom of this glorious gospel. You have survived God's critique of you. The ultimate criticism, you are, you are through. The one who knew you through and through, the one who could hold his law against you, you have survived that courtroom and now he's adopted you. He's your heavenly father. He's put your sins as far as the east is from the west. And now enjoy the good work of his son. And here is one last thought. In the midst of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there was always a plan. And here's the plan. That God would redeem sinners 
and place upon them the righteousness of God the Son. And you have been invited into that extraordinary fellowship, that happy community, and there is no shame. There is, there is no reason for you not to enjoy it because everything about the New Testament is saying it's true, it's true, it's true. This is who you are. And the Father receives you. The Son gave his life for you. And the Spirit is actively working to convince you of these truths. What a glorious deal. Let's pray. So, Lord, help us to receive this. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't believe it, help them believe it now, Lord. Help us all cling to it. Father, if this is that good, Father, help us cast aside our doubts. Father, what would it look like to obey you in light of all this love? Father, move, move among us. Help us be a gospel-shaped church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.